Nehemiah chapter 3. Now to catch us up in Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 1 is where Nehemiah comes across a great need. Well, he's been aware of it, and he finds out it is still as bad. It's just like it was. It's just like he had heard. Things have not gotten better. They've gotten worse. Word comes back. Uh, family members come back from Jerusalem and tell Nehemiah in chapter 1 how bad it is there. The desperate situation, the difficult circumstances that God's people are in. And so Nehemiah has got to do something about this. So what does he do? He prays. He commits himself to prayer. He says, God, this is huge, and I cannot do this. God, you have to move here. You have got to make this happen. For four months, he continues in prayer. And then the day comes. And this is the moment. This is what this prayer has been leading to, that now he's going to go before the king, and he's going to make his request. And the king is going to say yes, or the king is going to say no. He doesn't know what the king is going to say, but, he, but this is the day that the answer is going to come. And he's greatly afraid. And so he prays to the God of heaven, and then he says to the king. He commits his words in request to God in prayer. And God answers. God answers wonderfully. God doesn't answer only in the permission. God provides the resources to do it. Even as he told you that God is at work in you both to will the decision and the resources to do his good pleasure. Not only that, but God moves those stubborn people of Israel in Jerusalem and rallies them together around his good work. Remember, Nehemiah gets there. He rests for a couple of days. It's been a long trip. And then he, he takes that nighttime ride around the wall. And then he comes back and he, he's got his plan and he gathers the people and the leaders together. He says, look, this is what God has called us to. This is how God has given us. This is how God has already begun to work. The good hand of our God is upon us. And the people say, let us rise up and build. Let us rise up and build. This is not Nehemiah's work. We read the book of Nehemiah and we think about Nehemiah built the wall. You know what we learn in chapter 3? Nehemiah didn't build the wall. How about that? Everything you knew about the book of Nehemiah is wrong. Nehemiah didn't build the wall. Let us arise and build. Let that echo in your heart as we go from here this morning. Let us arise and build because in chapter 3 we're going to find out who us really is. And it's a whole bunch of us. And one of the things, the parallels, what God is doing with his people there and now is God is building. There is a work that he's given us, and what you do matters. What you do in God's great work, what you do, how you join in to God's grand design, God will not forget it. He notices There are innumerable people in this chapter that we've never heard of anything else. We don't know anything else about them because we never hear them anywhere else in the Bible. They don't seem to be big in the story, but they're big to God that he puts them in this chapter. Sometimes we wonder, what is that chapter? The whole book of Numbers, what's that there for? There's a couple of interesting stories, but there's a lot of lists of numbers and names. And what's going on with the first nine chapters or so of Chronicles? Name after name after genealogy after name, lists of people that we don't hear of and most of us don't care about. 
but God cares about every one of them and every one of you. God knows. God notices. If you take nothing else from Nehemiah chapter 3, take that and chew on it a while. That God notices. God knows. God will not forget your work and labor of love. God calls us, you see, to continue to build. God calls us to rise up and build. There are going to be some parallels that we're going to talk about, and they don't have to do with actual structures. But God calls us to rise up and build as well. So let's read. We're not going to read the whole chapter this morning. I don't think I could get through all the names. But let's read some of it. Let's start with a sample, the first five verses. Nehemiah chapter 3. I'm on page 399 if you're following along in the church Bible. If you're using a different Bible, I have no idea what page you're on. But Nehemiah chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Then Eliashib, the high priest, Eli. Eli, is your Eli short for Eliashib? Can I call you Eliashib? All right. Yeah, mom says yeah. All right. That just might stick. We can call you Shibby. No, we're not going to do that. Look what I've started playing around. Okay, then then Shibi the high priest rose up with his brothers, the priests. You do have brothers. And they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it. They set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. They know something about building walls. And next to them, Zachar, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hekaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, the son of Meshazebel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Baana, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoaites, the people from the village of Tekoa, where Amos was from. The Tekoaites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. Let's pause there. God has called these people to continue in his work. God has likewise called us to continue in his work. Let's see what we can learn from, from these initial verses. Verse 1, Eliashib, the high priest. The high priest rolls up his sleeves of his priestly robe perhaps or lays aside that garment and puts his hand to the heavy work of building a wall. Eliashib is the grandson, we learn elsewhere in the genealogies, he's the grandson of Joshua. Joshua and Zerubbabel, the two leaders, the, the priest and the prince who come back from, from exile at the command of Cyrus and they restore the temple. This is the Joshua who is the high priest whom God has cleansed, whom God has made holy and called him into this work described in the, in, in, in the prophet Zechariah. And Eliashib here, with the same characteristic humility, joins into the common work of putting stones into a wall. The same humility continuing in his grandfather's steps. Don't you love it when you see ministry continue like that over generations? When you, perhaps some of you here today have that heritage of faith. Or maybe you're able to look across your family. You're able to see that heritage. It's been passed on and people are continuing to live in it to the third or even the fourth generation. And that's what we see here. 
They not only built the wall, they consecrated it. They set it apart as holy. They recognized, first of all, that the work of their hands was God's work. You know something we do in staff meeting? We, we gather together Tuesdays, typically 1.30 on Tuesdays, and we've got an hour, an hour and a half together as a staff team, and we, we compare notes, what's going on, uh, uh, share information that other, others of us need to know, find out who needs what from whom, and when, when had we better do that by. And when we coordinate all these things, everybody's had a chance to, to um, throw into the mix there what's going on and how can we support one another in it. The last thing we do before we part ways and get back to the work that's before us is we ask somebody to commit the day to the Lord. The rest of the day, the work of our hands, the tasks that are before us, whatever they are, Lord, be in this. Lord, do your work in this. Father, by your grace and your mercy, make what we do today matter. Make it a blessing. They consecrated their work to the Lord. What we do here in this wall, they said, we do for the Lord. And not only that, the building of this wall, this is God's work. You know, one of the great themes out of the Reformation, one of many was the, the renewed understanding of God's people as a whole, as, as priests unto God, and thus the holiness of all vocation, not merely religious or priestly vocation. But, but the, the, the one who made shoes, Luther said, make the best shoe that you can and sell it at a fair price. And, and, and God is seen in your good work. They consecrated this common work that they were doing to the Lord. That also indicates that they recognized this work was special. This was not merely a neighborhood watch program. This was not merely the neighborhood or the town of Jerusalem providing needed security for themselves. This was bigger than that. God had called this people Israel to declare his name, his character, his likeness, his glory to the nations. And he said that they would do that from Jerusalem, that he would put his own presence among them in Jerusalem. And the nation would see his blessing upon them there in Jerusalem. And the nations would learn from seeing genuine worship there what the worship and approach of a holy God was like. The Queen of Sheba came to Babylon's, or rather young Solomon's Jerusalem. The Queen of Sheba comes to young Solomon in Jerusalem and she looks at this temple and, and, and how God had blessed him, how God had blessed them. And she said, the half hasn't even been told of the goodness and the greatness of your God. And that was always God's intention for Israel. Well, they departed from that and they went to Babylon along the way. But that was always God's intention for them. And now they rebuild the city because this is the place and they are the people. This is the place where God had determined to make himself known to the nations. And they are the people who are given this particular privilege that even the book of Romans says, well, what is the advantage, what is the advantage of the Israelite? Great in every way. To them were given the very words, the oracles of God. To them were given the temple service and the sacrifices. To them were given the privilege here in Jerusalem of making God known to the nations. And God has called them to continue in that holy work which they have. This is not a neighborhood watch, like I said. In this chapter, people are going to come from at least eight other surrounding cities and towns. And they're going to come back to Jerusalem to build in Jerusalem, not for their own security, but for God's name's sake. Because this is where he said he would be known 
to the nations. This is where Jesus would also come later and he would say, my father's house is to be a house of prayer for all nations. All nations. That was always the purpose. And so they come back to build because that is their privileged purpose as God's people to build up that God will be known to others. This connects it to our calling by God under a different covenant, under the new covenant. As God's new covenant people, we also live out our identity and calling. As Israel did under that old covenant, under the, as their identity of God's redeemed people in Moses, we live out our identity as God's redeemed people in his own son, Jesus. As the redeemed of Christ, God has made us into a new people to make him known to others. It sounds very similar, and yet it's, it's, it's greater, it's grander than anything Israel was given to do. And so Peter describes it this way in 1 Peter, if I can find it. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9. But you, he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You are a people of God's own possession so that you may proclaim the excellencies, the glories of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. As Paul said, you who once were afar off, having no hope and without God in the world, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ to make him known to others. You are God's unique people. You are his priesthood. You are his holy nation to make him known. As Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning of verse 17, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, been made new. Old things have passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this, all this new is from God, who through Christ reconciled, restored us into relationship with himself, and he gave to us the ministry of reconciliation. How did he do that? How is it that God gives us that privilege? That is, in Christ Jesus, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespass, their sin against them, and entrusting to us this message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making his appeal through us, we implore others on behalf of Jesus, be reconciled to God. For God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That grand, glorious work that God has done in Jesus, he has entrusted into our hands. This is where we build. God has given us an even greater privilege than Israel. And so we build. God has called us to continue his grand work, that which he inaugurated in Jesus, the new covenant in his blood for the forgiveness of sins. He has made us the messengers of that covenant. And so we build. So we continue in that work, and there is plenty of building to do. One of the things you, you realize as you read this chapter 3, there is plenty of building to do. There's much to do. The, the wall all the way around is a mess. 
It is in ruin. There is much to do. There's more than anybody can do, but there's not more than all of them can do. There's plenty of building to do. There's a long list of walls, gates, towers. There are places people come from. There are the people who did the work. And, and to try to make sense out of this, one of the things I gave you is in the bulletin, in the back of the bulletin, there's a colored picture. And there's very fine print. You'll have to put your readers on for this one. Get the magnifying glasses. Get, get somebody younger to read that for you. But it's there. It's kind of like that truth. It's kind of like when you read your Bible. You don't understand it, but you know it's there. Well, you've got the... Around that diagram of the city where north is actually on the left, I know that's confusing too, but I wanted to put it there at the bottom of the page and that was the only way I could do it to keep the words from being upside down. So there's a diagram of the city. I'll show you what that looks like on the screen in a minute. But around that, you notice all those different colored sections and the names next to those sections. Those are individuals who were, who were charged with leading, building, and all of those different sections. And the only reason I gave you that picture is all around the wall, all the different places, all the different sections where different people are involved. And there's something like that parallels the church there. If you stand that up, there's something about the body of Christ there that so we are many members and yet one body. We do not have all the same function, but we all have the same calling to use whatever giftings and abilities that we have together for the building up of the body of Christ. Let me show you just uh, um, some images of what the city looks like. There is that where north is now up again like you're used to seeing on a map. So there's the old city. That would be the, um, the, the city of David and Solomon in the purple. The purple outline. Now the yellow background, some of you would have a picture of something like this in a study Bible where they're comparing the city of David and again the city during Nehemiah's time to the old city today. If you looked at Jerusalem today and you looked at the city walls, that would be the yellow part. Now that's also called the Turkish wall. It was last finished in about the 1500s and it does not include some of what was uh, Jerusalem in the Old Testament and also Jerusalem in the New Testament. So I added an orange line which was called Hezekiah's Broad Wall and that's mentioned in Nehemiah 3 and that wall went out from the west side of the old city, the city of David, and it encompassed that broader area because Jerusalem had grown by Nehemiah's time. One of the causes of that is the northern kingdom had collapsed and been, been, been um, defeated by Assyria, and so refugees from the north came back south. And they were reunited because of that trouble, and they gathered to Jerusalem, which was the strongest city, and so now they're living outside the walls because there's too many of them. And so Hezekiah extends a wall to enclose that larger part of the growing city. Let me show you another diagram from, from a leading archaeologist. This is his model of what, what the walls looked like and the Temple Mount during Nehemiah's day when Nehemiah is rebuilding. The temple was smaller than it is today, or, or was rather in the first century. It's much smaller today. It's not even there. But you see the, the narrow city of David, and then up at the top, just below where the Temple Mount is, there's a rise area. It's higher than the city of David. That's called the Ophel. That Ophel is, a, is like a swelling. It's a raised up area. Like if, if a mosquito bites you, you say, oh, that's Ophel. That rises up. That little bump you get, that's Ophel. Okay, there you go. And um, that, that rise up above the traditional city of David is, is between the city of David and the Temple Mount. 
Oh, the picture's gone. Oh, there it is. It's back again. And the, the other wall, that Hezekiah wall that I showed you, you see it goes out to the west. There's two reasons. A, that would have been too large of a city for Nehemiah to build with, the, with, with all the people. That's still too much wall to build. And also, it makes the city too big. They don't have that many people to inhabit. And so, in fact, when, when the walls are finished, Nehemiah needs to now recruit people to move in from the villages and come and populate the city because the walls are strong and the city, he says, as small as his city was, he says the city is vast and there was nobody living within it. They needed to add people. Okay, so, so they leave off Hezekiah's addition and those sections of the wall, see the towers on the north? The west wall down south along the east side, that is, that is protected by steep valleys going down. And so it's harder to attack on those sides. The city is easily defensible. On the north side, it is vulnerable. That's why the towers are on the north. Okay, with that background, seeing some of what it looked like, let's get back into some of the reading because we're going to name different parts as we go around the city. We're going to name places where different people are... are um, are going to be building. But one of the things you get out of all of this and all these different sections and you see, the, you see the destruction and we need to build those walls back up, all of it looked like that Hezekiah edition. There's much rubble. There's much need for building. There's plenty of building to do. There's room in the building for you, if I can say it that way. We too live among much rubble. Our culture today seems more confused than ever. It's not more confused than humanity has ever been. It's just increasingly more so than we have experienced in our culture before because we've had the benefit of living off of the fumes, the remnants of the Reformation. And then the Great Awakening that, that occurred in, uh, in the Americas earlier on in our nation's history. And we as a culture lived on the benefit of the fumes or the remnants of those awakenings, those spiritual movements of God. But that is decreasing. And it seems to be rapidly decreasing now that, that faith in our culture today has been excluded to the margins. It has been swept aside. There is no unifying um, view that unites this people now that that has been swept aside. And so we have all of this division and all this jockeying for position today. But in the midst of all this, in the absence of God's truth, we have replaced that with something we call your truth. And you have your truth, 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 and those truths can be completely opposite of each other. They can seemingly be mutually exclusive in that that is your truth, and that is your truth, and yet it may not be true at all. In fact, truth cannot be defined as your truth because truth is that which is absolutely true. And yet, we've lost sight of that today. We, we instead have, when you hear somebody talking about your truth and, and their truth and this truth, and all those stand equal, though they oppose one another, that can't be, that can't be true. I hear people talking about the science today. And when somebody talks about the science, it's kind of like your truth. No, truth is absolute. It is not yours or mine. And the science, when I hear somebody say the science, I know either they're being disingenuous or they don't know what they're talking about. What do I mean? Well, there's no such thing as the science. There is, the, there is such thing as data. 
There are hypotheses. There are observable reactions. There are experiments and processes and testing and evaluation. There is research. There are conclusions. But there is not the science. Science is a process that includes all of those other things and is an ongoing. There might be conclusions of science, but there is no such thing as the science. The term is greatly misused today to try to recreate some sense of absolute truth that must stand above your truth or my truth because we threw out truth. So now we have the science, and yet we still have nothing certain because that's not what the term means. We're in a place where we despise police, defend criminals. We fire healthcare workers to protect the vaccinated. We are desperately, urgently trying to scramble to face a threat that scares us and we don't know what to do about it because we have some sense that some greater power around us should rescue us from this and yet the only power our culture is left with is government. And they're the ones responsible for the DMV. You see where this is going. We live in a time of rubble when man has to look to man because we've said, God, no, thank you. We don't need you. That's the rubble that we live in. And yet, this is so much like the first century where the government was the God, literally, and was worshipped. And the grandest buildings were the governmental buildings and the temples. And they were hand in glove together. And we're rushing back to the first century. But that was the century where those who believed in Jesus turned the world upside down. I'm not afraid of this moment in history. But we need to recognize that we're in it. And now is the time to build amidst the rubble. Now is the time more than ever to build up God's church, to build up God's people. We have been set into a moment where what you do is going to matter far more than you realize. And now is the time for us to build Now is the time for us to build and strengthen a church that will be a place that continues to build and strengthen to equip God's people for his mission in this world because this is our privilege. This is what we've been called to. And so we will build. That's why 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse verse 2, when Timothy or Paul sees this moment playing out in the first century, he says to Timothy, those things that I pass it on to you, you also teach to faithful men who will teach others also. He says, older women, teach the younger women. Teach these things to your children and to your children's children. Teach these things to the next generation, even as Timothy learned them from his mother and from his grandmother. We need to pass these things on to others. We need to build in God's church for the future because they're going to need God's truth in the midst of an absence of any real truth. So God has called us to continue in his work. There's plenty of building to do. What you do matters in all of this, so where will you build? It reminds me of Paul's great question on the road to Damascus. Lord, what would you have me to do? Where will you build? That's really the only question left for us. Where will you build? Because in this chapter, almost everybody is building. Let's look at a few more of them. Beginning at verse 8. We'll struggle through a few more names here. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Harahiah, goldsmiths repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers repaired. 
And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall, Hezekiah's wall. Next to them, Rephiah, the son of Hur, or Rephiah Ben-Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Jediah, the son of Harumaf, repaired opposite his house. Next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashabneaj, repaired. Malchijah, the son of Harim, and Hashub, the son of Pahath-Moab, repaired another section and the Tower of the Ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halosheth, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired, he and his daughters. Hanun and the inhabitants of Zanoah repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall. Eighteen hundred feet this crew took on, as far as the dung gate. Malchijah, the son of Rechab, the ruler of the district of Beth-Hakerim, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, its bars. And Shalom, the son of, of Kolhoze, the ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shelah, the pool of Siloam, of the king's garden as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. And after him, Nehemiah, not the Nehemiah, of the whole book, but Nehemiah the son of Azbuk, ruler of half district of Betzer, repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David, and so on. There's a lot of places, and a lot of the gates of the city, like the sheep gate. That was the gate where the temple sheep were brought in from the temple flocks for daily sacrifices and for the other extra sacrifices for festivals. There was the inspection gate. That would be if you were bringing in a, a sacrifice for a firstborn. If you were bringing in a free will offering or a guilt offering, you would bring it to the inspection gate where first the priest would inspect it and make sure that this was a faultless animal um, suitable for sacrifice. The fish gate was on the, off, on, on the road towards Joppa where the fish sellers from the Mediterranean would come up and they would set up their, their fish market outside of the fish gate. So that was the pleasant smelling section of the city. Another pleasant-smelling section of the city was the Dung Gate. The, the, the Dung Gate is not just that. The Dung Gate was the garbage gate. The Dung Gate was way down at the bottom of the city, hoping prevailing winds are going to go down the valley, away from the city, and they would take the garbage out the Dung Gate and toss it down the valley into the Hinnon Valley. And the Hinnon Valley was also the place where after Solomon married an Ammonite princess and she brought her god Moloch in, there, was an, there were idols established there, an idol to the god Moloch where Israelites would sacrifice their babies in fire to this god, this idol, this demon Moloch. Out the Dungate, in the valley of Hinnon, where they through their garbage, they offered their babies. This is, the, this is the section outside Jerusalem that Jesus would refer to Gehenna. He would compare it to hell, where the worm does not die, the fire is not quenched, the fire is burning the garbage. Fire is reminiscent, reminiscent of those idolatrous offerings. That was out the dung gate, the garbage gate. And yet, did you notice who was working around the dung gate? The ruler of one of the districts 
a significant person, a person who has standing and position, he rolls up his sleeves and says, I'll take on the garbage gate. Where nobody else wanted to work and where the stench was stronger than elsewhere, even the fish gate, he says, I'll go work there. Did you notice who else was building? Alongside of priests, there were also perfumers, those who made incense. There were also those who... um, who were the goldsmiths, those who made fine jewelry, those who did fine and exact work with sensitive fingers. And now those hands are lifting blocks and placing them in the wall. And just imagine if one of those blocks slips and falls on one of those hands and that fine work of the vocation is finished. And yet they commit themselves to the task they build. What would a section of wall, the the perfumers, think about those who work at the cosmetics counter at Macy's, the jewelry store, the fine folks at the jewelry store and the cosmetic counter, what would the section of the wall that they build look like? Well, let me show you. We have a section, if if you visit the city of David today, there's a section where you can see part of the wall that dates all the way from Nehemiah's time. This is one of the few sections. There's a few more that have been discovered. There was a new section that was discovered, in fact, just this last July. So 2,500 years later, the stones still cry out. But for now, this is the section of a tower right up above where those flowers are on the right-hand side. Up there, that's where originally David's palace would have been. He could look over this hillside. But anyway, the tower, this wall here, that section there, now up above higher, you see all the walls of Jerusalem, there's various layers. When they were torn down and built again, and who tore it down, and then who built it again, and so there's lots of repairs, there's layers of wall. The, the uh, layers further down would have been perhaps in Hezekiah's time, or even before Hezekiah. The layers up at the top, aren't, isn't that some nice stonework up there? Didn't they do a good job? That was during the Mac- after the Maccabean Revolt and uh, before King Herod, that, that, that section of the wall, those, those, those stones were laid. Very nicely done. Now, who did this mess in the middle? That's what I want to know. Let's get a closer look at that. Maybe that was the priests and the perfumers and the jewelers. The folks at the cosmetic counter at Macy's. Look at what they built. That's embarrassing, isn't it? No, it is not. In fact, this is one of the, the uh, first sections of Nehemiah's wall that we were able to see anywhere. Of all the wonderful sections, and I'm sure there were some nicely done parts, but this is the bit that God preserved for us to still see today. You know what I learned from that? You've heard it said, if something worth doing, it's worth doing right. And that's what keeps a lot of you from doing Because you think, well, I couldn't do it the way that it needs to be done. So I'm going to not do it at all. Well, I want to suggest to you that there are some things worth doing that are worth doing poorly. That's something. Yeah, I said that. That's something you can remember. There are some things that are worth doing are worth doing poorly. And this, where'd it go? It's gone. There it is. It's back again. This is one of those. Some things are worth doing are worth doing poorly because they need doing and God gives you the privilege, you know. You can can take it back off now. I'm done, thanks. uh, We think 
that God's all about. We're going to be involved in a, in, in a building project at some point, whether it's sooner or whether it's later. Sooner or later, this church is again going to have to build like generations before did for us. And when, it, when a church builds, we think about, oh, we, the, the, what this is going to look like and, and uh, the finish of it. That's going to be really, really important. And, and, and God's, you know, well, all that matters. But you know what matters more? What God builds in you through that building project. That's what matters in this story as well. Because the story of Nehemiah is not merely the story about building a wall. The story of Nehemiah is a story about building a people. And the wall, the joint project together in the wall is, the, is part of God's building them together as a people. A story that's going to continue in Nehemiah even after the wall is long done. That's how I know that's true. God continues to build in the people after the wall building is finished because it's really about the people. And that's what God is doing in you. He doesn't need me to do anything for him. But I'm his child. And he invites me to come along. God lets you and I play in his work. Think of it. And he's growing us up in it. The sacrifices that we give, they are important and they seem important for the task at hand. But that's not the biggest deal. The biggest deal is God himself calling us to sacrifice and give ourselves away for the sake of others and something bigger and grander than us. And realizing that his work is bigger and grander than us and giving ourselves to it. And that is his perfecting in us. That's what God is doing. Ephesians 2.10, which follows on a couple of verses that are wonderful verses about our salvation, which we celebrated this morning around the table. That, that for by God's grace are you saved through faith, believing in him. Not of yourselves. It is a gift of God. It is not of our own works. It's not of anything that we do to be good enough. Lest any, any one of us should boast. Because for we are, verse 10, his workmanship. The workmanship, that word, is, is a word that's also used to describe a very fine piece of art. It's a word to describe an epic poem. It's a word to describe a masterpiece. You are God's handiwork. You are God's masterpiece. Created in Christ Jesus unto good works or for good works that God has already mapped out so that you could walk in them. Those are your training ground through which he continues to work into you the image and the likeness of Jesus. That's his perfecting. God who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. And he does Complete it. He does his work in us as he calls us to roll up our sleeves, to join in the building, to give ourselves for the sake of others. In verse 12, we met Shalom, the district official. Again, somebody in charge, somebody with responsibility, who not only joins in the work himself, but he read somewhere, he got a memo, it was bring your daughter to work day. And he brought his daughters. Again, this is not a typical construction crew. And yet he brings them along with him. 
In 32 verses I mentioned to the kids, there are 51 individuals, and the two that are left out are Nehemiah and Ezra. Those are the two that aren't mentioned. The leaders, the ones who we think, Nehemiah built the wall, Nehemiah didn't build the wall. Let us arise and build. They're the ones that built the wall. The priest repaired by the sheep gate because they're the priests who use the sheep gate. And so they build where they're planted. In verses 14 to 16, all kinds of rulers jump in and repair. In verses 20 and 21, others repaired around the high priest's house because the high priest is repairing in the sheep gate. So while he's working over there, other people are working in his backyard. Several families repaired by their own homes in their own neighborhoods. We're going to get a reminder of small groups, and it looks something like that. Building in your own home, building around your own neighborhood. There are some teams, like the people from Tekoa, that did not just pick up their tools and go home after completing their assignment and say, well, I did my part. I did my share. No, when they finished their part early, they rallied around and said, well, what else needs doing? Where else could we build? And they grabbed a whole other section of wall and built that also. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 9, Paul says that, We are workers together with God. That we are God's fellow workers. We are God's partners. We are God's field. Not only are we fellow workers, but we are where the work is being done. We are God's field. You are God's building. In chapter 12, verse 7 of 1 Corinthians, it says, To each one is given a gifting of the Spirit, a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good, for the good of all. The gifting of the Spirit that you have been given is not for yourself. It's for the sake of the body as a whole. That we're told in chapter 14 to use each one's manifestation of the Spirit for the building up of the church. The skills that we have, what God has given us, what God has placed into us to put our shoulder to the work. In Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 16, the whole body is built up. The whole body is joined together by that which every part supplies when, I love this phrase, when each part does its part. Isn't that good? When each part does its part, the whole body is built up together by that which each part is providing into the work. You know, most tragic, the most tragic line in in Nehemiah chapter 3, we already read it. It was at the end of verse 5, where it says that the nobles, the rulers from Tekoa, and I know there's pride in position, but Tekoa is not a grand place. Tekoa is not a place that's on the bus tours today. Tekoa is a place on the way to nowhere. Tekoa is a place out back where you can basically raise goats. And maybe in some of, the, some of the oasis spots, like Amos, you could be a grower of figs. There's not a lot in Tekoa. Tekoa is not a proud place to be from. Tekoa is not a, a, an important place to be in charge of. And yet some of the rulers or nobles from Tekoa would not stoop to serve their Lord. It wasn't a problem with the village as a whole. In fact, people from there worked so hard, they finished their section and grabbed another. But their own rulers, their own leaders, would not stoop themselves 
to serve their Lord. Now, some translations translate that as their Lord, meaning our Lord. They wouldn't yield their will to God's will. Other translations translate that, that, that word, and it can be, can be done this way as well, to refer to their lords, the others who are responsible for the work that would delegate things to them. They wouldn't, they wouldn't listen. You're not the boss of me. I'm going to do what I'm going to do. That's eh, not my kind of thing. That's not my work. I have other things that I need to do right now. I'm kind of busy. That's the most tragic line, that the nobles from Tekoa would not stoop to serve the Lord. They would not bend their necks. They would not put their shoulders to the work. Serving the Lord will always take your submitting, your will, your time to others in their directions or to their needs. And they were not willing to do that. But the work is not for some. This work belongs to all of us. Romans 12 6 says, having gifts that differ according to the grace that is given to us, let us use them. Let's just pause right there. Romans 12, 6. Having gifts that differ, do what? Let us use them. That's good. Let's just do that. Let's just use, in whatever way, let's use the gifts that we have been given. 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 10 says, As each has received a gift, let us use it in serving one another. Gifts are not to be put on the shelves. Talents are not to be buried in the ground and then return to Jesus one day. I didn't lose it, but you didn't use it. If you don't use it, you will lose it. That's why Paul tells Timothy, stir up the gifting that is in you. Stir it up. Fan it again into flames. Things that are exercised by using. As you've received a gift that each one of us has, let us use it in serving one another. You know what Nehemiah chapter 3 is? It's a description of that. Nehemiah chapter 3 is the Romans 16 of the Old Testament. What do I mean by that? The Romans 16 of the Old Testament. Romans 16, you remember that chapter? It's a long list of names. Here's another one. What are they all there for? Paul is remembering. Paul has not been to Rome. Paul has, can't go to Rome right now. He's going the other direction, back to Jerusalem. But he has many in Rome whom he knows. Others that he's heard of their good work, but many he's known, they've served with them and been alongside them in other parts of the Roman Empire. And now they're back in Rome and he's not there, but he knows them and he knows their character and he knows how they're giving themselves. He's heard. And Romans 16 is that catalog of a reminder of all the different various people involved in the work of ministry in that church in Rome. And Nehemiah is like that for the Old Testament. It's this list of all the different people, people we had never heard of, people we would never know otherwise. They're not important people, many of them. But they're important because God bothered enough to put their names right here that 2,500 years later we'd still be reading of them. You know, I thought I'd take Nehemiah chapter 3 along those lines then and I would do a brush prairie version. And I certainly like Nehemiah 3. It doesn't include everybody, but it might go something like this. I'll just jump in somewhere in the midst of the chapter. And Brad from Hawkinson and his wife and daughter all build in the discipleship groups. While Tammy and Terry, both from orchards, build up the littlest ones. Dave from farther north is laying a solid foundation for faith, while Mike from Brush Prairie is training others how to measure and build. 
Sharon and Amy come from the southeast to build up young lives. Luke, Allie, Rachel, and many others fill the building with praise that proclaims faith. Daryl and Linda from Pleasant Valley strengthen the building in many pleasant ways. And Gary and Sherry travel from the far north, a land called Yakult, to build among our most senior builders. Tom and Carrie come also from the orchards to build the Iwana Gate. And Salmon Creek sends the Johnsons and Julie to build the Pre-K Gate. Innumerable workers from all around the city build in small groups while Andy and Nate build at the front gates. God's people come from north and south and east and west to gather here to build together. Building not walls, but building bridges into people's lives. To go and invite others around us to bring them into God's family. To build one another up as followers of Jesus. To invite others in, show them the way to enter God's community and God's life. You see, what you do matters. Others will forget but God won't. What you do matters. He has called us into what he is building. And there's plenty of building to do. The only question that remains is, where will you build? Because what you do matters. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work, the building of the Lord, knowing this, that your labor is not for nothing in the Lord. Father, Lord, this morning I pray, perhaps there's somebody sitting right here in this room, perhaps there's somebody that's hearing this online, Lord, that is weary. They have worked long and they've not seen fruit. They don't see what you're doing in the midst of the busyness of the work. Father, I pray that you would encourage them. Give them strength to continue. Lord, that you would refresh their souls in the work that you have given them as they continue to build. And Father, I pray, Lord, for someone who's here this morning that perhaps is not sure where where could I build Where should I build? Father, that this morning would be a time when they could take a next step in finding. They would ask someone else. They would look to one of our leaders and say, where could I build? Would you help me discover that and take a next step? Father, use us as your people, building together in the lives of others, that Jesus will be known, that souls will be grown, We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.